The broadcast is now starting. All attendees are in listen-only mode. So, morning, can you hear me? Yes. Great. Uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I hope you're doing well and staying safe. Uh, it is with great pleasure that I'm here today to participate in the opening ceremony for today's webinar on leadership with the topic Connecting with Human Motivation as Essential Leadership Tool During and After the Crisis with our expert trainer, Dr. Mornay Master. So, my name is Valbona and I'm an International Training Consultant at Leoran. Uh, I will be present during uh, the upcoming two hours to ensure that everything runs smoothly. So, if you have any kind of question, do not hesitate to contact me. Uh, before we just start, I would like to introduce uh, you to our expert trainer, Dr. Mornay Mostert. Uh, I am pleased to announce that Mornay is one of our leading expert trainers at Leoran on topics such as leadership cognition, decision-making, system thinking, uh, design thinking, future thinking, and advanced leadership. Uh, he has a professional career uh, of over 20 years, and I'm positive that even someone of you might have had the chance to collaborate with him in the past. Uh, if you have any kind of question related to the topic, uh, please you, uh, write them down in the panel uh, uh, of questions, uh, which you will see on the right one of the control panel. Um, Mr. Mornay will make sure to answer them by the end of the webinar. Uh, also, kindly note that uh, after the session today, you will be receiving your certifications of attendance uh, on your emails. Thank you all, and wish you very informative and beneficial session ahead. Mr. Mornay, the floor is yours. I believe you can start. Well, Bona, thank you very much. Um, ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Thank you so much for joining us uh, for this exciting session. It's a, it's a great honor to be with you. As I share some of the work uh, that Valbona has indicated over the last uh, 20 and more years, um, I've been with uh, Leron for over a decade now and very excited to uh, be part of this exciting webinar as we explore leadership dynamics in this crazy time, a time really uh, riddled with, with great difficulty. And we're exploring a subject that was difficult before we went into um, the uh, coronavirus crisis, and that is leadership. And so thank you very much uh, for joining us for this session and to Leon for the invitation. And what I'll share with you, what I've decided to share with you is a, is a very structured framework. And the invitation is really for you to use the time this afternoon to reflect on your own practice as a leader. The reality is, in all of these decades that I've been doing leadership work, the reality is that leadership is much more of an art than it is a science. The reality is that individual leaders need to make sense of their own world with their own problems, respond with their own decision-making in order to become even greater leaders. And this work has been done all around the world in various places in both developing economies and in developed economies, in many countries in Africa, in the GCC countries, in Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Kuwait, a whole host uh, of Middle Eastern countries. And it has also uh, been delivered in Western Europe, in France, in 
Rome, um, in London, and a, a number of other countries. And so what I'll share this afternoon is the so-called 10 Ps framework. And it's really just um, a compilation of various um, leadership principles with this really very important question. Here we are, all of us leaders, senior people, confronted with this enormous crisis. Perhaps the first time in the history of our species that we have a crisis like this. And so one of the really interesting questions is, what role could leaders play in a time of crisis? And the 10P framework that I'll share with you will remind us of the very important role that leaders have in a time like this. And the, the key question that we're, we're essentially trying to answer uh, in this afternoon's session is what the crisis has done is essentially uh, presented us with a, a crisis that is almost at an existential level. And for that reason, it's really important that we start asking some really very fundamental questions. And for leaders, perhaps, one of the most fundamental questions is what does it mean to be a human? Now, my goodness, what a great philosophical question, but why is that question so important? As I show you this image, slightly adapted from the work of Leonardo da Vinci, who himself wanted to try to understand what it means to be a human. Um, the question is important because, of course, leadership is essentially um, I see here that my, my screen sharing has been paused. I hope that's continued. Um, well, Bonner, can you just confirm for me that my screen is visible? Yes, your screen is visible. Uh, feel free to yeah, move the slide so you can move your slide. Thank you. Um, so the reason that, that it's important for us to ask questions about what it means to be human in a time like this is because Leadership has many definitions, but irrespective of the definition that you're going to look at, leadership must be defined as a people-driven process. Leadership starts with an understanding of connection and influence with other humans. So unlike other subject areas that have to do with hard numbers, the science of leadership has an awful lot to do with appreciating individual human psychology and the way that leaders can connect with and influence other humans. So we're wondering in a fresh way, what does it mean to be human? Many of us have felt during this crisis that the kind of lockdown, sometimes draconian rules have made it difficult to behave the way that humans would normally behave. So. One of the ways to think about this idea of what it might mean to be a human, um, one of those ideas is to think of how different people might define uh, the idea of, of being a human. And you can, you can see a kind of continuum there that we can use to try and understand that question. On the far left there, there are those who believe that humans are essentially uh, a little bit similar to a machine. There are fundamentals to what it means to be a human. There are some things we can say with high levels of certainty. Um, humans have a kind of essential set of characteristics. 
But as we move along that continuum, there are those who say, well, you can develop an approximation of, of, of what it means to be a human. You can never quite capture it. As we move even further to the right there, there are those who are saying, well, the human is so complex, it's difficult really to pin it down to any characteristics. And on the very far side there, there are those whose leadership philosophy uh, is informed by the idea that essentially humans behave in a typically chaotic way and that even the very nature of identity is uh, difficult to accept when we're trying to think about what a human is. And so what I really want you to understand about this continuum is that different leaders look at leadership in a different way. Some of them think of fundamental principles of leadership and others accept that leadership is highly complex, almost chaotic. But in addition to that continuum, in trying to find meaning in the world of leadership, we could think about uh, the nature of being human um, on two further dimensions. And, and those are um, on the top end there, the potential that humans have to respond to even the most difficult crisis, such as the one we're facing today, and the capacity, be that emotional or intellectual, to respond to these kinds of challenges. And on the other side of that scale, you can think of uh, what a human is by thinking about what are those irrepressible needs, urges, behaviors that as humans, we simply cannot resist. And that means that you're then presented with a little bit of a complex framework like this that says, on the one hand, people believe there are fundamental principles. On the other, they believe it's essentially chaotic. On the top end, we think about humans in terms of their potential and their capacity for performance. And on the bottom level there, we're thinking about the sort of irrepressible, the sort of uh, behaviors that will not be ignored by humans. And what that starts to sketch is a complex map of how, as leaders, we can think about where we're going to influence humans. Now, don't worry. What I've developed for you this afternoon is a step of 10 principles known as the 10P framework, only because each one of the principles starts with the letter P, the 10P framework that I'll share with you step by step by step. And the invitation to you in this free webinar offered, offered by Leron is simply to sit back as a leader and to reflect on your own practice, your own leadership work, and where you can perhaps take your leadership to the next level. We'll assume for the purposes of this exercise that most people who attend this webinar already have a lot of leadership experience. They've traveled, they have experience, they have done a lot of reading and education. So we're interested in what's the next level of leadership for you and we're asking new, fresh questions because the globe is confronted by a new set of challenges. It's not a bad idea when thinking about humans and what they can achieve to look at some of the greatest minds uh, of the previous century. And certainly, uh, in my view, one of those great minds uh, is that great theoretical physicist, Albert Einstein. And in trying to uh, imagine what humans might be like, Einstein's view was that to think about the future of humanity and humanity's uh, 
uh, access of that future. The first step is imagination. Interesting that a man like Einstein, one of the smartest people in history, uh, says that this is not about a formula. Humans leadership is not something that you can figure out in Excel. It's not something that you can map easily on a project management timeline. He says, start with imagination. And in that way, he starts to unlock some of what our amazing species Homo sapiens is all about. We have this astonishing ability to imagine alternative futures. So, dear colleagues who have joined us this afternoon, here's a first very important question to you. What is the future that you're imagining, whether it is for your unit, your team, your department, your business, your society, even the globe at large? What is the future that you're imagining? Is that an attractive future? And are you sharing the future that you're imagining with those who are following you? All those in your systemic network, not only your staff, but all sorts of other stakeholders like suppliers, clients, shareholders, and a whole host of others. Do you have a positive imagination for what's about to come? Or have you fallen victim to the enormous pressure that we're all facing in a very difficult time such as we're facing now. Einstein says, imagination. Okay. I was inspired also by the views of um, Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum in his various uh, works. And, and you'll notice that um, occasionally as I share the framework with you, I will be, um, I will be quoting him as we go along. And here's, uh, perhaps an opening quote that's, uh, that's worthy of consideration. He says, everybody starts small. We all begin life as a single cell. Every business starts as one person with one idea. How fast you go, how far you get is in your hands. And we can paraphrase perhaps to say also in the hands of leaders. He then goes on to say, the bigger your vision, the bigger your achievement will be. And so, in a sense, you can hear that echoes some of the sentiments of Einstein, who says, your imagination is your forecast of life's coming attractions. Will you stumble along the way? Perhaps, but we cannot let fear keep us small. We have to be brave to be big. Inspirational words indeed. And so, when your stakeholders, your staff, your suppliers, your clients, your peers and colleagues look at you, is this what they're seeing from you? Are they seeing some courage? Are they seeing you crafting a new vision, whether at a business level, a team level, even at a family level? Here is some scientific evidence just to support uh, the views we've just heard about the future. And this is from uh, technological Forecasting and Social Change, a uh, journal uh, article, peer-reviewed article, called Corporate Foresight and its Impact on Firm Performance, a Longitudinal Analysis. So, I will save you having to read this, and I'll give you the short version. And the short version is as you might expect. The research, which was done over several years, 
suggests that leaders who look at the future deliver company performance that consistently outperforms leaders that don't look at the future. So that's a very important dimension that uh, we're hearing both uh, from the ruler of Dubai, from Einstein, from a number of scholars in the world of leadership. Look towards the future in an attempt to create that alternative future. Okay, so in the workings of the human mind, and of course the human mind is an enormously complex uh, instrument, the workings of the human mind, um, what we're trying to understand is how the human mind can allow us to start to imagine alternatives. And one of the little techniques we use is a simple idea called Vujade. Now, many of you will know the French idea, déjà vu, from the French meaning seen before. It's the idea that you come across something and you think you've seen this before and so perhaps you can proceed based on previous methods. But in the kind of crisis that we're all facing today, the question is whether we can in fact proceed on the basis that we've simply seen this before. The reality is as a species, we have never quite seen the scope of a crisis at a global level with this number of people in the history of mankind. And so one of the implications is that innovation now becomes no longer optional. Innovation now becomes essential. And so the idea of Vujade is really just a simple idea that says rather as with deja vu, where you come across something and you think you've seen it before, Vujade says, even if you have seen it before, how could you look at it as if this is the first time you've ever come across it? Now, if we apply that principle to leadership, then we're asking, how can we take a fresh look at the fundamental dimension of leadership, which is other human beings, and how can we look at other humans as if it is the first time that we're seeing them. Why is that so important? Well, with a fresh perspective, that starts to open up all manner of new possibilities. That, in a certain sense, one of the first steps to innovation is to, to look at something that you've seen many times before and to imagine what it is like to see this for the first time. And so for the rest of the session this afternoon, we're going to look at humans. We're taking a very bold, creative approach. We're going to look at humans as if it is the first time we've ever seen a human. And we're going to try to imagine, if I had to lead other people, where could I connect in a scientific way? Okay, so why is that so important? Well, of course, we're leading in various ways. We're leading ourselves, of course, dear colleagues, our own careers, our own trajectory. We're leading our staff. We're leading suppliers. We're leading even those who are managing us in some degree. We're leading customers. We're leading shareholders, a whole host of stakeholders in this very complex systemic map in which senior leaders find themselves all across the world. And so dealing with this complexity, I think is going to be one of the key skills for leaders of the future. Perhaps it's worth our time, colleagues, just to reflect very briefly 
on what we think a crisis is. If we if we accept perhaps that we're we're facing a current crisis with COVID-19, there might be uh, some some value in just thinking for a moment, reflecting on the very nature of a crisis. Now, what's very interesting is you can see from the Greek origins of the word crisis, it really originally had to do with the importance of a decision, the importance of making a decision. And that's why you heard Valbona in the uh, introduction say that my work is in leadership broadly, but also very specifically in terms of decision-making, specifically using thinking methodologies such as strategic thinking, futures thinking, and systems thinking. And so with the origins of the word crisis, really based on the importance of a good decision in a difficult time, such as the time that leaders are facing today. Let's have a quick close look at how we can think about a crisis. Well, perhaps the first idea here is that um, a crisis is a sudden and surprising event or realization. It's sudden, which means that we haven't had the time. Think about Corona. We didn't have the time to prepare very carefully for this kind of global level pandemic. And it is surprising. In other words, we were going about our business, making our plans, doing our investments, thinking about our futures, when suddenly, when suddenly this enormous global threat came upon us. So those are very important dimensions of a crisis, a sudden and surprising event or a realization. Perhaps the scale of this is one of those realizations. In addition then, um, this sudden and surprising event or realization causes a significant disruption. For it to be a crisis, it must be significant. What do we mean by an interruption? Well, quite simply the idea that we were going along our business and we were then interrupted, confronted by, um, by the surprising event. And it's a significant interruption. And I think we're all feeling that. And that interruption disturbs the systemic balance, the sense that we had perhaps before the crisis, that even though the world was difficult and complex, there was some sense of balance here. With a significant interruption, that balance is disturbed. You can almost think about an, an acrobat or a, uh, a gymnast walking along a beam and then experiencing a perturbation, a, a shove, a push, uh, a force from the side, a surprising force from the side. And that starts to create a little bit of imbalance. And of course, that leads to instability uh, socially, but also very importantly, economically, even politically. And this imbalance in the system creates an enormous amount of anxiety. And as you can see from the definition, it presents an appreciable threat, a noticeable threat, some kind of danger, as so many of us uh, has experience, have experienced, some kind of danger. So a sudden and surprising event or realization that causes a significant interruption that disturbs the systemic balance and presents to us an appreciable threat, something that could really harm us, especially for the current future. Now, what do we mean 
by the current future. The current future is essentially the idea that if we keep going the way we're going now, that is the future that we will create. So what a crisis does is it stops us in our tracks and it helps us to think about the idea that if we keep going like this, we will be facing a threat that will create a significant amount of damage for us. So, if we take the context then of the global crisis, and if you're happy to work with that definition of a crisis, sudden and surprising event or realization, significant interruption, disturbing the balance with a, 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 an appreciable threat, especially in the current future. Now let's put humans into this crisis. Let's see what happens. Now let's put leaders into that crisis who have to lead the humans during time of crisis. That's what we're trying to work on this afternoon. A long introduction, I know, but perhaps worth our time exploring it. Okay. Um, the, the important thing then to appreciate about uh, this crisis and the impact that it will have on humans is that it is in a sense a stress test. You can almost think of a think of a holding a vase in your hand, and if you apply a huge amount of pressure to that, uh, the cracks in that vase will start to show. And if there were any weak points, those weak points will start to collapse. And so it's interesting to think of a crisis as a kind of stress test for our businesses, a stress test for our ability to lead and connect with others in a very authentic way. Um, and um, what a crisis further does is that it changes the way we think about time. Many of us had um, had plans. I had my birthday a week ago. Of course, uh, a few months ago, I had a great plan for lots of parties and celebrations. That couldn't happen. And what a crisis also does is it accelerates things. In other words, speeds up certain things and it retards or slow down, slows down other things. Think about the acceleration, for example, in digitization over the last, just the last few weeks all over the planet and how this has retarded things like uh, the cash-based economy um, or elements like face-to-face -face interaction. So that's the crisis we're in. Now let's put some humans inside that crisis and see what that might mean to us. Well, one of the dilemmas with that crisis is that I mentioned to you the Greek origins of the word crisis about decision-making. The reality of a crisis is that you have to make decisions and of course, you are making those decisions always in the present. A decision can only ever be made in the present. Even if you made it yesterday, it was the present then, or you make it tomorrow, it will be the present then. Why is that important to understand? Because the present comes with a lot of noise. Some of you will have heard the phrase, the new normal. Well, uh, let's look at what uh, Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid al-Maktoum has said about this. He says, change or you will be changed. Leaders who neglect the good of their people will be forsaken. Leadership, he says, is a service, not a gateway to privilege. So when we make decisions of service in the present, the difficulty is we have all the noise of the day. We have the prophets of doom, the naysayers, those who say the whole world is about to collapse. 
Well, of course, as leaders, we can't afford for the world to collapse. The responsibility is on us to find alternative futures. But when we make those decisions in the present, we often base those decisions on the past. The difficulty with that approach is as much as there is a lot of merit and value and richness in exploring the history, the difficulty is that the, the present day is not the same as the history. History has all in fact already passed as much as it still uh, resides in our memories. But what am, I making, what am I making the decision for? Quite interestingly, I'm making that decision for the future. How strange is that? To make a decision always in the present, almost always based on the past, and certainly always in the interest of the future. What that illustrates is the complexity of making a decision, which is multiplied a hundred times during times of crisis. So time messes with the way that we make decisions, and that makes it really difficult, especially with this enormous added pressure uh, of the crisis situation. So as a general rule of thumb, our advice to senior people, and, and most of our work is, is with, uh, with senior people, typically in large organizations, uh, very often global organizations, is to spend um, about 20% of their intellectual energy on the past. There are all sorts of lessons that can be learned and there's a particular approach, particularly as futurists that we take uh, when evaluating the past. Then we say about 30% of your intellectual energy on the present, that's what's going on today. And about 50% of your intellectual energy as a senior person on the future, that is what hasn't happened yet. And typically that means what could happen, what should happen. Now, when you look at that uh, arrangement of 20, 30, 50, what happens during a crisis? Well, during a crisis, that present number, that number of 30, 30% 30 of your intellectual energy, suddenly grows to 80 or 90, or even 95 or 98%. In other words, during a crisis, the present becomes enormous in our minds. My encouragement to you, dear colleagues, is to remember that there is a future and that the creation of that future is largely up to you, the leaders. So it's really important to, we're not doing a whole program here on futures thinking or strategic foresight, we can do that on another time, but at this stage, just a very important message that the present is not exactly the same as the future. And that's something to be very careful of. We call it in our science, status quo bias. It's the bias, the mistaken intellectual process that the present day will essentially be the same as our future. When in reality, we have so many times in our history as a species had a number of occasions where we've used the phrase, the new normal. And I'm sure some of you are already sick of hearing that phrase. The truth is we've had that phrase a number of times, even in the last few decades, whether it's with Trump or with Brexit or with the global financial crisis or with the dot-com collapse or the dot-com boom before that or um, the war in Iraq or the uh, fall of the Berlin Wall before that. Many times in the history of mankind, we've had a so-called new normal. And um, the reality is that our job as leaders is to create the future.
So we can do that by improving three kind of key uh, elements, which we go into in a, in a lot of detail on the, the normal uh, leadership programs, such as the International Certificate in Advanced Leadership. And we can look at the cognitive side, that's the intellectual side, how do I solve complex problems? The affective side, that's the emotional world of the leader, and the behavioral side, that is quite simply, how do I do things differently? And if I do things differently, what happens? How do things in fact change? Intellectual domain, the emotional domain, and the behavioral domain. So let's start then on this framework um, known as uh, the 10P framework, 10 dimensions in this very difficult question we're posing, what does it mean to be a human? 10 dimensions um, of the 10P framework, and I will go through them with you step by step by step. The invitation to you, uh, dear colleagues, fellow leaders, is to ask, how can I respond? Is there anything in each one of these 10 dimensions? And the reality is not all 10 will be relevant to all, to all people on this webinar. The truth is that um, some of them might be more relevant to some people than to others. So in our quest to understand if we as leaders are leading creatures called humans, what makes these creatures human? And the first thing that we can argue here uh, as we try to explore the nature of uh, human is that humans are attracted to things that they find pleasurable, whether that's positive relationships or positive emotions or things they enjoy, and they're, they're dispelled from things that they find painful, things they don't enjoy. It sounds extremely simple, but consider the implications um, for leadership. Mohammed bin Rashid Maktoum says, simplicity starts uh, in the heart, away from negativity, away from pessimism. Consider the importance of those words in a time like today, where being negative is almost the default mode for almost anybody that you speak to. And what we're reading here is that uh, we need to move away from negativity and pessimism. So, as a leader, this is tough, right? Leaders also, of course, experience the um, the uh, dilemmas, the challenges of, of everyday life. And it's difficult for us, but it is really our job to wonder about where the optimism is here. And so when I reflect on the following 10 things of which this is the first, the key thing to understand is we will look at elements that humans are attracted to and elements that humans are dispelled by. Why is that important? As leaders, we're trying to influence the, the intellect, the emotion, and the behavior of those around us, whether those are staff or suppliers or any other stakeholder. We're trying to influence the hearts and the minds and the hands. In doing that, what is the science telling us? What increases the probability of persuasion and influence, and what decreases that probability? And what I've done is to look at a whole series of formal studies on issues around motivation, influence, persuasion, and change. And I've integrated these findings into the 10P framework. So as leaders, what are we doing to give, for example, our staff hope, to give optimism to our suppliers? Look at what 
Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum says here, I believe that positive energy and optimism helps us to take up any challenge in life and to succeed in even the most difficult tasks. I also believe that positive energy is contagious. We can transmit it to others. So colleagues, when your staff are engaging with you, whether it's through webinars like these or on Skype or WhatsApp or Microsoft Teams or Zoom, can they feel from you a sense of optimism about the future? Or are you making yourself guilty of falling into the trap of utter negativity and pessimism? Okay, pleasurable, exciting future then. Can we imagine those? The next thing that we could argue that all uh, humans are attracted to is the idea of profit. And I don't just mean the financial kind of profit. Sorensen at, um, at MIT identifies four types of profit. Um, he identifies, of course, the financial profit. And naturally, uh, there is some uncertainty uh, regarding that. But also, let's just look at the three others. The one in the bottom left there. Um, is uh, an expression perhaps that we've seen from many people in times like these. And uh, it illustrates anxiety, anxiety, nervousness, uncertainty about the future. And what Sorensen argued is that leaders have the opportunity to make people uh, be influenced by their ideas if they're able to reduce their anxiety. So in your work, dear leaders, what is it that you're doing to help people to find some sense of certainty and security in an attempt to reduce their levels of anxiety? Or are you perhaps guilty that you have joined the general anxiety of the rest of the world and that you are portraying that in your engagement with your staff? So that's financial profit, um, certainty or peace of mind profit. The one on the top right there is time. Time, an enormously valuable example uh, of profit. And is it possible when you're sharing um, team objectives, for example, uh, with your own teams or other stakeholders, that in the way that you're presenting that, that you're saving them a little bit of time? We know that time's been really difficult to manage for families, for example, who've had to homeschool children and had to uh, you know, clean the house and look after uh, all manner of things around the home. Um, is the work we're doing and the work we're delegating to teams, is that work adding value or is it simply adding cost and time? Is there a way for us to help them to save some time? And then the one on the bottom right hand there, uh, to save people, of course, some work. Um, and what I think the crisis has done and, and in fact should do is to help us to revisit what is essential work. What is essential work? What is absolutely necessary? For advancing our team or organizational business unit or even our families and is there work that's perhaps not as necessary um, as we are now realizing um, let's let's hear again um, from uh, from uh, Muhammad bin Rashid al-Maktoum he says life is a, an extraordinary gift some people appear not to appreciate in every breath and scent every touch and sight we are gifted by new experience and the chance to feel the richness of experience, the richness of experience. When we engage with staff as leaders, dear colleagues, 
Are we giving them a sense of profit in its broadest sense, not only financially, but also in the reduction of anxiety, the availability of time, and the focus on essential work? That's number two. Let's move to number three. There are only 10 of these. Uh, let's move to number three. This is a little bit of a strange one for certain uh, senior people, and it is the uh, the uh, universal human need for play. This one, um, I have to say, sometimes takes a little bit of uh, convincing for some senior executives who have become all too serious and adopted a very serious uh, stance towards life and all its challenges. But it turns out the research suggests as humans, we like to have fun. It's an enormously powerful motivator. We like to enjoy ourselves. Now, of course, as you become a more and more senior person, work tends to take over. Uh, it consumes even the time that family uh, once used to take. And this is just an encouragement, a reminder that, of course, as humans, we like to enjoy things. We like to have a bit of fun. That's not to say that our problems are not serious. Of course, they are very serious. But if you, if you look at, for example, uh, some of the recent marketing research, there is an, an enormous amount of work that supports the idea that if you can get the customer, for example, to experience some sort of fun uh, when engaging with you, that will make them uh, much more easily convinced of your ideas. Um, even Mohammed bin Rashid al-Maktoum says, we may not live for hundreds of years, but the product of our creativity can leave a legacy long after we are gone. And to be creative is not, I'm afraid to tell you, serious business. As serious as the results are, the process of creativity is not that serious. And so it's one of these, this is one of the reasons why gamification, for example, has developed as an enormously powerful trend in a whole spectrum of leadership science. Um, even the Romans, uh, had the idea of homo ludens, in other words, playing humans, having fun, finding a way of um, of turning some of the desperate seriousness into a little bit of a lighter moment. Um, one of the reasons for that is that what seriousness does to the mind is a very dangerous thing. With seriousness comes um, a, a men not only a physical, but a mental lockdown. And with a mental lockdown, especially if you combine it with issues like, like uh, anxiety, that is the worst possible mindset from which to create the innovation which we need in a time of crisis. So it's really kind of paradoxical. A crisis creates anxiety. Anxiety creates a reduction of creativity, which creates a reduction of innovation. But what do we need in a crisis? We need exactly the kind of creative intellectual capacity to produce the innovation to lead us out of the crisis in the first place. So I know it looks a little bit silly and it sounds a little bit lighthearted, but actually there's a lot of very deep science behind this idea. Let's move on to the next one here, which is poesis, um, a Greek word. Um, I'm, often, um, I'm often sort of uh, poked fun at by some of our clients who argue that uh, you know people with PhDs always want to use a Greek word somewhere in a presentation. And here it is, poesis. It means something really very simple, and that is to make things or to structure them or to organize them. And the argument I'm giving you here, colleagues, is that 
this is a universal human need. It is a universal human need to work and in its broadest definition. And that includes making things, whether those are products or services, creating things, the importance again of creativity, of organizing the world around us. And that has very close relationships with, with other related concepts. Concepts like learning. Humans have a very interesting lifelong relationship with learning, something that's not necessarily the case for all other creatures on Earth. Humans have a very deep-seated curiosity. In other words, something they'd like to learn something about in future and have this amazing capacity for creative production. That is not just doing the same thing over and over again, but also doing new things. It is true that, of course, occasionally humans get tired. And so, just like any other creature on the planet, this propensity, this proclivity for work is balanced by this need for efficiency. In other words, not to do work that doesn't necessarily add any real value. Let's hear from Ahmed bin Rashid al-Maktoum. He says, I might go easy on people who make mistakes, but never on people who make no effort. And he says, the race for excellence has no finish line. So this, the argument here is that humans actually have the need to work. And so as leaders, are we creating the opportunity for new meaningful work during a time of crisis? Something that now requires a lot of creativity and innovation, expecting people really to work essentially in the way they did um, before COVID, I think will, will fast become uh, an irrational request. Are we giving people an opportunity for meaningful work that is inspired by learning and curiosity and creative production? Right, um, back to Einstein as uh, he says, the true sign of intelligence is not knowledge, but imagination. He introduces that idea of imagination again, just to support the idea that creative work, especially in the rapidly digitizing world that we have now entered will become increasingly important. Number five here, the, human, the universal human need for protection, for safety, for security. Um, this is something we all need, the, the desire to be safe, to feel a sense of comfort with our environment, something that uh, relates to security and protection is the need for some degree of predictability and certainty, something that's particularly uh, relevant in a time of crisis where, in fact, certainty has gone out of the window. Can any of our habits still apply in a time like this? Mohammed um, bin Rashid al-Maktoum says, good leadership puts the interests of the community as a whole before those of any specific group. In other words, their interests, their security, their safety, their protection. Credibility of leadership, he goes on to say, can only be established through action and not words. Interesting to reflect on that. He's, of course, using words, and we're quoting his words, but I think his sentiments are clear here, that, um, that to work in the interest of the protection, the safety, security, the certainty of a broader community, not just the individual leaders unique needs, but also the broader community, which can be anything from the broader team, the broader business unit, the broader business, indeed, the broader society, or even your family. That, he says, is an important dimension of leadership. And in our view, also scientifically, 
um, a universal human need. So we've gone through the first five. The last five won't take nearly as long. Um, and then we'll start opening the floor for some uh, observations, comments, uh, and questions. The next principle here, the next P, uh, is prominence. And what we mean by this is the universal human need to stand out from the crowd. It turns out, no matter what society you're in, this is an important idea. As much as you may be enamored um, with, um, with the idea of, of a communal focus where everyone's important, it turns out it's still nevertheless uh, important for humans to have a sense of status, a sense of standing out, a sense of significance, and a sense of recognition. Now, during lockdown, when uh, office behavior has dramatically changed, when the crisis has really put the cat amongst the pigeons in terms of how we do our day-to-day -day work, are we as leaders still making a point of finding an opportunity of making obvious the uh, opportunities to show recognition to our staff, to not work on the, on the basis that no news is good news, but in fact, go out of our way to find instances where staff can get additional recognition, where we can appreciate them as significant contributors to the business, where we can enhance their status somehow, um, even through creative awards programs or even just with a word of encouragement. Mohammed bin Rashid al-Maktoum says, Dubai, for example, will never settle for anything less than first place. There's that enormously powerful drive um, to be prominent for status, for significance, for recognition. Are you giving your staff that opportunity during a crisis like this? Let's move on um, to number seven, the universal need for power. And this must be broadly interpreted. I'm not just referring, of course, to political power here or the power to control others, but um, with, a, with a bit more nuance, perhaps, the, the need for influence. And that influence um, is applied um, sometimes in a very subtle way, but in this case, uh, what it means is the ability to influence the world around us. To have, even though we can't control everything, some control over some of the dimensions of our world, and to feel that we have an impact on the world around us. It turns out all humans want to feel that. And that power is relevant uh, in terms of leadership on others, but it's also important uh, to note that people also want a sense of power over themselves. It's called autonomy. And in fact, almost all studies on motivation suggest that if we can help people to become explicit about where they can exercise power over themselves, this enhances their motivation. With the enhanced motivation, the likelihood that they will be persuaded by their leaders simply increases. So are we making it explicit to our stakeholders, our staff, where they can have influence, where they can exert a degree of control, where they can somehow impact the world around them, where they can have autonomy of themselves, of course, not in all aspects, but in in which aspects can they have them? Where can they influence others? And how can they influence their situation? Mohammed bin Rashid al-Maktoum says, whoever convinces himself that he is not worthy of first position, 
has doomed himself to failure from the very beginning. And thereby, he is encouraging us to exert the power over ourselves to be active shapers of the world around us. So let the uh, pandemic, therefore, not hold all the power. Moving on to number nine, uh, to number eight, the universal human need for pairing. In other words, this is the idea that humans are essentially social creatures. We have what the Romans called appetitus societatis. In other words, the need to be among other humans. Now, during the lockdown, this need was enormously frustrated by the kind of uh, difficult rules under which we've had to uh, live and work and perhaps to some degree in the future will continue to be. But humans have a need to be among other humans. We are a social beast. Um, we have a need to belong. We have a need both to show empathy to others of our species and to receive a sense of empathy from those around us. So, dear leaders, are you reminding the staff around you that they still have a place in your organization, even though many of them have been working remotely, for example? Are you reminding them that despite their physical absence, there is a psychological social connection which the enterprise, the organization, even the country has with its citizens or the organization with its staff? just as you might do um, in a certain sense with a family member. Do, are we giving them a sense of belonging and uh, the idea that despite the fact that they've been physically absent, we still uh, allow them a sense of belonging in our community? And are we demonstrating empathy for the great difficulties they're experiencing? Um, if, we, um, if we quote again, Mohammed bin Rashid al-Maftum, uh, there is a world of difference, he says, between a leadership that is based on love and respect, which is all about others, pairing with others, and a leadership that is based on fear. And so there's an encouragement for us to, to reflect a little bit on how we are ensuring that those in our community, whether they are staff members from the lowest levels right up to uh, board members, shareholders, suppliers, um, and other partners, franchisees, franchisors, any other kind of relationship in the broad community, that they have a sense of belonging, that they play an important role in this broader social community that we call our business environment. And then number nine, it turns out, this one is a little bit tongue-in-cheek, this image of course, um, but number nine uh, is the idea of parity. It turns out no matter what culture you're from, anywhere in the world, whether it's in um, some of the deepest, darkest African uh, spaces or in the Middle East or any other place in the world, we have a need for parity. In other words, for a sense of fairness. We want things to be somehow evenly balanced out. Now, during this time, many people have started asking questions about how fair it is that um, they will or will not be retrenched, for example, or that they'll work on short time or that they'll be on um, limited uh, salaries, for example. And I think it's important to make explicit how leadership decisions like these, which we all have to make, they're tough calls to make, but 
but it's important to illustrate explicitly that there is in fact a parity, a fairness, a sense of equality that's built into this. And that equality extends to the fact that, you know, you know, whether everyone's sharing the same level of risk, for example, or are leaders not subject to the risks that staff have to face on a, on a day-to-day basis? What about opportunity? Does everyone have the same opportunity to be safe, uh, to advance themselves and so on? Will everyone pay the same cost? Will everyone get the same benefit? And so the idea of parity is just a reminder to us as leaders that a universal human need is a sense for fairness. And are we making explicit? You can hear that's a really important element in all these 10 Ps that I'm sharing with you, that it's really the job of leaders to make these dimensions explicit and explain how they may play out uh, in the world that we're leading. Mohammed bin Rashid al-Maktoum says, a true leader is one who creates a favorable environment to bring out the energy and ability of his team. I'm sure also her team. A great leader um, creates more great leaders. There's a great example of fairness. I have an opportunity to be a leader. I will share that opportunity also with others. And a great leader, he goes on to say, does not reduce the institution to a single person. In other words, there's a sense of fairness. Not all the benefit, not all the opportunity accrues to just, um, just the leader. There's a sense of sharing and fairness and balance. And then finally, number 10, um, a really interesting human one, the P of philosophy. Philosophy. Aren't we fascinating creatures as humans? We're perhaps the only creature on the planet that has a sense of a lens of interpretation on the world. We have paradigms. Paradigms are essentially patterns of thought that repeat themselves again and again and again. We have views, in other words, of intangible, metaphysical things. We believe in isms. We believe in ways of living. We have a purpose and we have a consciousness of purpose, which no other creature on the planet has. We have preoccupations, things that keep our minds busier than other things do. We have, as a creature, a need for shaping meaning. We want our work to be meaningful. We have belief systems. We have an astonishing array of choices to make. And those choices are informed, in fact, by the way that we think. We have a sense of our definition of ethics, what is right and what is wrong. And we have an appreciation of aesthetics. That is what we find pleasing, beautiful, and attractive. What an interesting creature we are as a human uh, to, to be the only one to have a sense of philosophy. Muhammad bin Rashid al-Maktoum says, it is such a beautiful life, but many people spend it worrying, burdened, and frowning. And here we can see just a glimpse into his own philosophy. Uh, rife with, with optimism, seeing the beauty, the aesthetics that I was referring to on the right-hand side there. So, dear colleagues, do we have a sense of the philosophy, the paradigms and purpose uh, of our many stakeholders, how they conceive of the world, their thought processes, their thinking modalities, and can we somehow find a way of connecting with those? And so, if we... Um, 
if we are if we were spending a, a lot of time on something like a full-time program we can start to ask a whole series um, of questions colleagues much of the leadership journey starts with the asking of appropriate questions questions that prompt us that stimulate us in the right direction we could wonder about for example whether we are in fact leading in the first place are you leading are you taking the lead are you perhaps risking abdicating that leadership and explaining your leadership away by using COVID-19 or are you still leading in fact a crisis like this demands even greater leadership we could ask furthermore why why are you leading why is leadership something that is important to you has it remained important to you throughout the crisis and why is that and one hopes that your answer to that will be something like the kind of service that you'd like to contribute to those various stakeholders that we've mentioned before we could ask uh, for example are we clear on whom we are leading do we know who they are how they think what their needs and wants are do we have a sense of those various stakeholders and how we may be able to influence them we could uh, reflect also especially during times of crisis um, on where we are leading them to in times of uncertainty the answer to this can be very difficult to define but my encouragement to you this afternoon is that this doesn't go away in a time of crisis it actually becomes more important where are you leading them to is it towards greater certainty and success or um, are they languishing in uncertainty and confusion do we believe as leaders we could ask that our staff in fact have the ability to make it out of this crisis that they have the ability the skills the competence the commitment motivation to find their way out of the current crisis and do we do we believe that they uh, that they're willing to do that we could ask um, where could we connect more how could we connect um, as a as a, a follow-on how could we connect more where are those opportunities for connection and so as we reflect on our framework we think about pleasure and pain positive emotions optimism we reflect on profit not only in terms of money but also in terms of reducing anxiety through greater certainty through saving time where it's possible and through saving work that's uh, not adding value can we help our staff and other stakeholders in these ways to profit can we reflect on play think about those fun elements of the work that so easily can get lost when the pressure of the crisis uh, is always looming can we think of paresis in other words the human need to work and to produce and to be creative and can we encourage our staff to do that and in fact recognize that need they have for that creative work can we make a contribution in enhancing their security in any way not because we want or can rescue them but only because we want to give them a sense of psychological security a sense of certainty is there anything that we can say with a higher level of certainty can we help them to understand that they are prominent can we encourage and enhance their status 
make them feel significant and recognized in a very difficult time? Can we make sure that they feel a sense of power over the world around them, but also indeed over themselves? Can we make sure that they remember that they are an important part of a social community and that we value them as members of this community? Can we make sure that the way we're doing things exemplifies absolute fairness so that their motivation can be enhanced? And can we, colleagues, have a sense of where their minds are, what dominates their thinking, and how to connect there? The 10P framework. Colleague, it's been an absolute pleasure sharing this framework with you. And perhaps in some of the time remaining, uh, we can allow for some comments. So if I could invite you um, in the chat section, please share with us some of your comments. Perhaps um, many of you are vastly experienced, internationally traveled, enormously educated. You have had an experience of leadership for many decades and you've had an experience of leadership during this time. Please share with us your observations. What have you learned? What have you discovered? What works? And what doesn't work? Please feel free to share your wisdom uh, with us. Let's see if we can engage in a bit of a conversation. Um, Balbona, I'm going to, um, to ask you to, um, to reflect on, um, on the chat uh, uh, activity and um, to see if there's anything um, that you can observe. Uh, well, yeah, we have two comments from the, uh, our attendees for today's webinar. We have Mr. Trad Alkata, who wrote, I think that sharing goals and implementing either the employee engagement or a quality of real leader. This is the common number one. Thank you very much. And can I just uh, quickly respond to that? I, I love the idea of sharing goals. Sharing goals rather than just, um, um, rather than just announcing goals. Uh, goals do a few things. They, the, the first thing they do is they give you a sense of the future, where things are going. And if you're able to share them, it gives people a sense of parity and it gives people a sense of pairing, a sense of belonging to the community that now has some clear goals for the future. That's very valuable. Thank you. What else have we got, Albana? Uh, we also have one additional comment from Mr. Muhammad al Hunaydi. He wrote, pairing. I find some contradiction in this point. It is not a secret that many companies all over the world are terminating staff to cut down costs. How can we overcome, yes. overcome this point? What other options yes. do we have? That's, wow, that is a, that's such a fantastic question. And uh, of course, colleagues, we only have a few minutes this afternoon and you know, that it's always true that you can, you can spend 10 years studying leadership and uh, you, you'll still not be done. So you're absolutely right, of course, that um, this is just uh, one model, doesn't take care of everything on the planet. And you're right, there are some contradictions. So I think what we're going to see, uh, in, if I can just respond to that great question, uh, I think what we're going to see is that, um, and we often see this in fact in times of retrenchment, that companies go through a process of carefully re-evaluating the kind of talent and attitudes that they believe will help that company to succeed and flourish into the future. Now, it's quite correct that there, is, there are some contradictions here when we think about pairing, when we think about this 
this need to be uh, with others. And they include a phenomenon that we refer to as survivor syndrome and the difficulty around managing survivor syndrome. Survivor syndrome is the idea that you find yourself in a crisis and think about, a, I mean, a tragic example would be a car accident in which, uh, you know, you're the survivor and the others haven't survived. And the, the, the difficulty is that those who remain, in other words, those who are not retrenched, they suddenly have a few interesting experiences. Their society, their work community has now been disrupted. They have survived. And one of the interesting consequences is that very often during times of retrenchment, those who are left behind have a greater sense of anxiety. It sounds paradoxical, doesn't it? It sounds as if they should be relieved. And of course they are, especially for the financial benefits and the many other reasons we work, creative expression and so on. But they have a, they, they've now seen what could happen to their colleagues. And so very often they have the fear that it could happen to them also. And I think organizations with very good HR processes, very good OD processes, culture formation processes and so on, will go through a very deliberate process to help those who stay behind to have a renewed sense of purpose in the new streamlined version of the company going forward. It is, of course, the, re the unfortunate reality. It is true that some people, many, many, many thousands of people will be losing their jobs during this time. But what leaders will do with the people who stay behind is to form a new close-knit unit and take that unit into the kind of future that they want. Valbana, any other response? We have one other question. We have Mr. Atarullah Mirza Muhammad. He asked how could the leader, how should the leader react to circumstances when he is restricted to follow the rules and regulations within the organization? Yes, it's, uh, it, it is a fair question and it's something we, we see an awful lot. I think the, the first thing to understand is that if you think about the, the document of policies and procedures of your current organization, when was that document produced? Obviously, before we had this crisis. Now, as we move into the crisis, we have this need for protection, for certainty. And we often find certainty and protection in the rules. And yet the rules were written in a different time, in the past. And so I think that, um, of course, we all work within systems and we have to appreciate and respect the rules. But the question is, what's the role of the leader? And I think part of the role of the leader is to help the organization to appreciate how some of those rules may have shifted and changed as a result of the crisis. Some of the rules, of course, will be still valid. But I think one of the, one of the interesting things when we look at high innovation environments is that they are always updating their rules, even without a crisis. They're always updating the rules. And that means that leaders are always coming to their peers in peer meetings and saying, look, we have this rule. I understand why it existed in a certain time. Perhaps this rule has now outlived its time and perhaps we need to replace it with something 
that makes a lot more sense. So my encouragement to leaders is not to be slaves to the rules, but in a very positive, optimistic, contributive spirit, attempt at least to propose new, innovative, fluid, flexible, agile rules that respond to the new reality. Organizations that will not be able to do that, I'm afraid to say, will be overtaken by organizations that have an agile response to the rules. Having said that, I understand also that organizations have important rules. Some of those rules are uh, legal requirements and of course cannot be moved at all. But the issue here is not whether leaders can or can't do something. It's not a binary issue. It's really about finding the opportunity where you can make a contribution and then working hard to indeed make that contribution and bringing outdated rules to your to your rulemaking peers, to governance structures, governance committees, for example, bringing those outdated rules and stating your business case for why those rules may need to be updated, I think is one of the valuable contributions that leaders can make in the sort of world that we're in now. Well, Bona. I'm here. We have another uh, another attendee, Mr. Mohamed El Gohari, who wrote, "Transparency in sharing information is imperative. Should listen carefully to frontliners, not just their supervisors, as loyalty comes only from true care for your staff, not just empty promises." Isn't that a wonderful thing to say? And also, also, I particularly like that idea of uh, of the frontliners. It, it touches on so many of those issues that we've uh, addressed. It gives people a sense of, uh, a sense of uh, importance and prominence, even at more junior levels, that their voices are being heard. And it's very often the case that frontline staff see things in their engagement with customers, for example, or on the shop floor, or on the factory floor, on the production floor, that people in, in higher levels of management simply cannot see. And so I, I, I want to underline that and, and, and thank you for the observation that the voice of the front line is a very valuable uh, input into overall leadership decision. Of course, that doesn't mean you're, you're surrendering your decision to the frontline workers, but input from frontline workers give you a much richer perspective when you have to make those, those difficult decisions. Very good. Bona? Then we have Mr. Amir Khan who wrote, thanks Mornay. Um, no question. Nice session. I enjoyed the optimism in your thoughts. Then we Thank have, you very much. Then we have again Mr. Mohamed El Gohari, who is asking for your feedback. Um, instead of layoffs, companies should find innovative ways to recycle their employees. Yes. Um, I think that, um, that high innovation companies will, uh, in fact, do that. It also depends on how, how good your, your hiring practices were in the first place. So if, if you were the sort of company that had a, a, a lot of people there that you know, shouldn't have been there actually in the first place, then I think it's gonna be very difficult to avoid layoffs. But if you look at so-called unicorn organizations, um, those organizations that, that go to sort of a billion dollars uh, in less than 24 months, one of the practices of unicorn organizations is that they do exactly as the question suggests, which is that they hive off certain groups of talented people and dedicate those people to high innovation uh, projects. And so 
I, it may not be possible for all organizations and all staff in organizations, but I do think that leading organizations, remember as futurists, we're always thinking in the longer term. We're not just thinking for the next few weeks. And, you know, so many fantastic countries in the, in the GTC region are doing exactly that, thinking really longer term. And so one of the big risks is to think short term, let go of your high innovation talent, and then in two or three months, you're just hiring them back. Well, now you've destroyed the trust. You've disrupted processes. Your, your talent matrix is completely messed up. It might be worth your while to invest in those high talent individuals with high innovation capabilities, even if you have to give them special projects to work on. What we will see, I think, in some high innovation companies is we're probably going to see um, on certain kinds of consulting services, those uh, that use of external consulting services coming down and then the use of some of the high innovation individuals inside the organization to deliver some of those uh, some of those research services um, and, and consulting services. So I, I do think that one of the if, if you're going to be lazy about this, it's really dangerous. If you're just going to if you're if you're the exco and you're saying to your managers, you know, guys, I want to know from you which 10% you're going to cut, you know, in the next uh, in the next month. I think that's a very risky strategy. It's, it'll be much more useful to have some kind of framework that you'll use to to think about uh, people's culture fit, their motivation, to think about their unique skills. It might actually be worth, it might sound strange to you, but it might be worth in a time of crisis to do another skills audit so that you can see exactly where those hidden talents in the organization were and how you can perhaps use them now that we're in a different time. Interesting question. Thank you, Mark. So we have another question. Uh, this punishment during crisis should be reconsidered due to the limited opportunities. Uh, it's a very cryptic uh, question, but I, I, I do think that's right. Um, it, Valvana, was it punishment? Should punishment be reconsidered? Yes. Yes. Yes, I, I think that's true. I think in a sense we've all been punished already, right? It's it's uh, these are tough that times. Um, so so I I do think that um, of course, and this is a philosophical issue, but I do think that a, a care and concern for people is really important during this time. And and companies that are able to demonstrate an organizational quality and character of care and concern, I think those companies will have a lot of relationship equity going forward in the long term. Companies that will abuse, in inverted commas, their staff and blame uh, blame COVID-19 for that abuse, I think they're going to they're going to suffer some consequences in the long term, even though they might uh, win a little bit of cash flow in the short term. So yeah, I, I think. Our philosophy of people and the way we'd like to treat, especially our talent, but of course, if we can afford it, everybody, unlikely that we can afford it, but specifically how we treat our talent, that's going to have long-term consequences. We have an additional question. What about the need for treating relationships with the people of a community and organization? 
with a scene of diplomacy and does that way help reinforce parity? Yes, what a what a lovely uh, question to introduce diplomacy into the uh, leadership dialogue. Thank you. That's a that's a lovely concept. It's something that we that you know the the, the phrase typically works in um, in sort of the international diplomatic environment. But I I do think that a kind of nuanced approach, a sense of decorum, a sense of sensitivity in a time like this. Uh, will indeed uh, contribute to pairing. It will, I think, uh, help a lot with parity. Uh, it will make people feel uh, that sense of belonging. Uh, it will even make them feel more secure. You know, I'd go as far as to say that even if you absolutely have done all these best practices and you've looked very strategically at your talent and your longer term organizational strategy and you still have to let people go, well, there's a way to do that. And, and doing so in a way that reflects diplomacy and sensitivity to the needs of people is just so much better than you know defending some kind of um, some kind of organizational rudeness only because we have the crisis. People will of course remain human, and I think it's important to keep respecting that. We have an additional question: How can we build good work environment during this crisis? Yeah, that's a, that's another great question, and and we we heard um, the, the importance of creating the environment, um, and it's an interesting question that relates to to both the role of government in creating a an environment for business to flourish, but also at an organisational level, creating the environment in which people can do their optimal work. Now, I think one of the important questions here is what do we mean by optimal work? And I think that's an important thing to define before we start thinking about the environment. In other words, what I'm trying to argue is if you want to create an optimal environment, think about the kind of work that has to be done first. Don't just think about your own individual needs for what you think constitutes a perfect environment. So for example, if you want, uh, if the work that you want is more innovative and creative, well, then the environment needs to allow for that kind of creativity and innovation. But certain environments are highly procedural and rule-based, and there's a very good place for those organizations also. Well, in that case, it's important that the work environment allows for highly procedural work. And so, for example, things like instructions, policies, and procedures need to be absolutely clear. So I'm answering this question about the environment by saying, start with just reflecting on the kind of work you do in your organization and the kind of environment that would best facilitate that kind of work. In a sense, and I know it's a terrible thing to say, but in a sense, um, you know, as strategists, we're always looking for the opportunity, even in the worst crisis. And one of the opportunities we have here as organizations is that we can, in a sense, reinvent ourselves. We've, we're already seeing so many organizations doing that all across the world. And in that process of reinvention, that question about the, the work environment is just such an important one because we, there will be some structural changes. There might be some people who will, will not be with the organization in the future. There may be some high value clients lost. There may even be some shareholders that decide um, uh, to disinvest. 
And so there's a real opportunity, if, if I may be so bold, in a time of crisis for reinvention, recreation. And in fact, if you look at crises in history, then very often, if you look at many of the very popular uh, companies that we all know by heart today, many of those were spawned during or just after the global financial crisis. Because there was just a real sense that business as usual is not going to do the trick. And we, we, as the old saying in politics goes, we cannot let a good crisis go to waste. In other words, we have to use the opportunity that is presented by the crisis to reinvent ourselves, to make ourselves sustainable for the longer term. We have an additional question. Um, what can we do to ensure that we will continue to grow and develop as leaders? Yes, it's a, a lovely question. And I, it's interesting that question, how it is uh, focusing on the idea of growth and how that growth is not just in terms of the bottom line, but also in terms of the leaders. Again, I know it's tough and I, I don't want to sound insensitive, but you know, the, if you're in management today, you're in a senior leadership position today, you, in a sense, you have a front view seat of one of the greatest crises in human history. And so it's really important that you don't think of this crisis as simply a temporary freeze. So there was, it was fluid beforehand, now there's a temporary freeze, and then the world will continue afterwards. It's important that you have a learning orientation during this crisis. Have a look at what you can learn from the way that how organizations respond to times of difficulty. So the next time, that you as a leader go through a difficult time that will not be nearly as difficult as this. You, maybe before the crisis, the most difficult thing you've had to deal with was, let's say, uh, a restructure or a merger or an acquisition or some kind of you know, technology platform change or whatever it is. Now you're dealing with this. So take what we call a meta position, a, a sort of a slightly removed position, and see if you can decode what's happening here. Learn about how organizations respond in times of crisis. So that the next time that you go into the crisis, you are now a considered leader with considered experience. And at that crisis, and they will come again, there will be a time again in your career as a leader where you will have to restructure and retrench and right size and merge and acquire and change platforms and policies and procedures. That time will come. But when that time does come, let's make sure that as a leader, you have extracted every possible lesson that you could from this crisis. And then when that next crisis comes, you'll be the experienced person there and you'll be able to really lead those less uh, less experienced than you. We have an additional question. How leaders perform their duties when management doesn't allow them to work in the right direction and are not providing support? Yes. Um, gosh, you know, I, I, I really think it's time um, that, 
and we've had this debate for so long now in in in, in management theory circles um, around the the, the 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 sort of the the rigors of hierarchy. I think a time of crisis is a time to come together, not to agree on everything, but to have much more frequent debate and discussion, and have much more open exchange of ideas. A time of crisis means that we have to make decisions in real time. And it means that we have to make decisions with the perspectives of everybody. We heard about frontline workers now. So I think um, for leaders to be humble in a time like this means that that very strict hierarchy with the very top leaders and the senior ones and the middle ones and the junior leaders and the low you know, entry level staff I mean, those hierarchies have their place and there's a reason that they exist. But the crisis gives us an opportunity to be a little bit more fluid there, to connect with each other a little bit more. And the risk is that the crisis has already made people uncertain and insecure. So many people feel at risk, even if no one's told them anything about their jobs being at risk. Many, and this is the reality, will have gone onto internet platforms and look at, looked at what other jobs are available. Now, organizations that don't respect their talented managers during this time particularly, run the risk of losing those talented managers to their competitors. And again, I want to encourage those with creative ideas and with innovation to, in a very humble way, submit those ideas. It requires some creativity and courage and emotional resilience. Why creativity? Because we need some new solutions to old problems. Why courage? Because it, it means that you come to the next meeting and you ask for a place on the agenda. And in the six minutes you have, you present an idea and its business case. And in addition to creativity and courage, why emotional resilience? Because the chances that your idea will be rejected are very high. But so what? You're a creative person. They don't like that idea. You'll come back the next time with another idea. And so I really want leaders to understand that we're in a, we're in a rough ride. We're going through, through rapid waters, white waters. It's white knuckle stuff we're holding on to the side of the roller coaster and that means that because it's not business as usual it's a golden opportunity to be creative and courageous and have emotional resilience but it's also important to understand that it's because it's not business as usual even good ideas won't necessarily be accepted for that you need resilience you need emotional bounce back you need to not take it so personally that every one of your suggestions is, uh, will not be accepted. In fact, you should probably expect most of them not to, be, uh, not to be accepted. But for that reason, you should have your next idea already, already in the background. And the next question is, what are the things that leaders could do during these uncertain times that could affect the work environment badly? And thank you, Morna, you're amazing as usual. This is the additional comment. <laughs> That's very kind. Um, uh, what's the question? What are the sins? S-I-N-S. Yes, yes, sins. Yes, yes. Um, I think that 
you know, if you look at the usual sins of leadership, they have a lot to do with massive egos. You know, uh, they have to do with arrogance. They have to do with the idea that, that, you know, some people believe they somehow know all the answers. In a time of crisis, think about a military situation. Think about a military situation. Let's say, you know, an area is under attack, God forbid. What happens? Um, when you're um, when you're trying to um, make a decision under a crisis situation, the worst thing you can do is phone in somewhere from the head office and say, you know, this is what we're going to do next. That's not to say that the head office doesn't have a voice, but the big issue in crisis decision making is that it is real time with real-time data constantly being updated. So I would say big ego and arrogance is maybe one of the biggest sins that leaders can commit during this time because the crisis requires multiple perspectives, managers, but also frontline, but also top leaders and real-time perspectives, real-time data, high levels of agility. So bureaucracy, and arrogance in a time like this is very unlikely to succeed. We have an additional opinion from one of the attendees. Uh, he wrote, we have a huge challenge of cutting short the cost and reduce manpower. Is it wise to keep the middle level managers uh, or fire the senior manager? Because it is better to train the middle managers to act as senior manager and easier to practice faster innovation with fresh ideas instead the primitive traditional throughout the process. Yeah, okay, so he sort of answered his own question there. Um, so, uh, he, I mean, I'm, I, I'm being a little bit silly, but it sounds like he's arguing in favor of firing the senior managers. Um, perhaps it's, um, um, he's, he's not in the firing line himself. Um, I, I don't know, but, but let me get serious about the question. If you think about different levels of work, the, the, the key for us always is what is the work? Start with the work. Yeah? And once you have a, a, a sense of the work, and of course that work must make sense in terms of the organizational strategy, but once you have that strategy and a sense of the work, then you can start messing with anything else because anything else must follow that. So if you think about typical levels of work, we can think about five general levels. At the very basic level, what we call direct output, typically the kind of the, the shop front or the, 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 the front level work, direct output, short time frames, easy to measure whether the work's been done or not, frequent metrics almost on a day-to-day -day basis. Did we do it or didn't we do it? The next level up is what we call diagnosis. These are guys who evaluate the quality of the first level work. How well was it done? They start looking at trends over time and so on. Um, they start looking at broader issues, maybe looking at climate and culture and motivation. They start looking at who performs well, who doesn't, which process is working, which process doesn't. So from direct output, we move then into diagnosis. The level above that is what we call design. In other words, it's a response to the diagnosis. So if we have the fundamental level work, that level's been diagnosed, 
What's the design that would respond to that diagnosis? One level up from that is integration. So if we have various designs in response to various diagnoses, how can we start to integrate those designs across the organization? And the next level up from that is growth or global uh, growth considerations. And the level up from that is global consideration. So when we think about levels of work like that, that might help us to answer this very difficult question. And so uh, one of the difficulties with some senior managers, I say some senior managers, is that they have never learned to do the direct output, the diagnosis, the design, the integration, and the growth. There's somehow, some of them uh, got there by surprise, and some of us are not sure how they got there in the first place. I say some. Some others are brilliant. I've worked with some amazing managers through Learon over many, many years. Um, so I think the, the way to answer that question is, let's hang on to the people who can, as managers, move up and down that hierarchy. In other words, people who can diagnose, design, integrate, grow, and then move back as well from grow into integrate, design, diagnose, diagnose, design, integrate, grow. The managers who are able to have that kind of agility, I think are the managers that should be kept around. So irrespective of where you are uh, on the hierarchy. We have another interesting question, which is what is a leader's best asset? <laughs> um, I would say uh, in a time of crisis, the ability to learn, the ability to learn. Um, in fact, many futures have argued in the past that, that successful leaders of the future uh, will be the ones who can, and here's a, a very important idea, adapt more quickly than their environments. Yeah, that's an important idea. So there are those leaders who just can't adapt, they'll fall away. There are those leaders who adapt too slowly, they might even fall away. There are those leaders who can adapt with their environment, but now as leaders, and remember I'm a strategist, right? So uh, my, my goal when I work with you is I want you to win. So what I want you to do is not only not adapt or adapt too slowly or even adapt at the pace of the environment. Leaders who can learn are the ones who can adapt faster than the environment. They can see the changes happening in the environment and they're always curious, they're always learning. I think the ability to learn is one of the great weapons in a, in a modern leader's uh, armory. We have another uh, question related to the crisis. We have with the current situation, some leaders leave employees in the dark and there is no parity being maintained. How do you work on changing selective biases? Yeah, gosh, um, such a such a great question. I have to say, I have some sympathy uh, with certain organisations who, um, you know, are in such a deep crisis that they just don't know what to say. So, I, you know, things are in flux. Shareholders are messing them around. Uh, staff are moving around. Um, you know, there are there is legal proceedings happening in the background. Um, you know, uh, significant clients um, may uh, be considering leaving the organization. So 
you know, I, I just want to say that when I give these responses, I, I do so really humbly with the full respect that organizations are highly complex places. You know, I'm not trying to pretend that there are three easy steps you can take to achieve anything. Um, so, um, but, but I do think that, that what's important is that um, this need that people have for protection and for certainty must be somehow respected. And so what should really happen is that you should communicate ethically as clearly as you can. So what is ethically? Well, you keep confidential what has to be confidential, but what is public, let's make that obvious. Let's say, look, what we can say is that, you know, I don't know, um, we will, even if you can only say that we will say something in three weeks, then say that because that gives people a sense that you're working on things. If you just go cold, you go dark, you go radio silence, what happens in organizations then is the grapevine starts to develop. In other words, people start making up their own story of what's going on. And that risk is actually much, much greater. So there's a real risk that you become a black box that uh, all sorts of strange stories start to develop about your organization if you don't communicate. I think very strategic communications means that people are always thinking about the frequency of the message, the quality of the message, including its clarity, and the key stakeholders of that message. So I think uh, strategic communicating organizations in this time will think very carefully about crafting messages on a much more frequent basis and to sculpt those messages very specifically for different kinds of audiences. To say, for example, and you can think about a classic sort of communications matrix and think we want to communicate, let's say, to staff and to managers and to uh, high value clients and to, let's say, uh, all other clients as another segment and to shareholders, for example, and maybe even to government. And so if those are our key audiences, what is the frequency of messaging? And of course, during crisis, the frequency of messaging should go up, not down. People expect greater frequency of communication, not less frequency. So what's the frequency of communication? What is the message? And what is the trajectory of the message? So in other words, where am I leading people to in my messaging strategy? And I think with a, with a sort of strategic communications mindset like that, things like reputation of an organization remain intact. And when the crisis is over, I think those organizations will be praised for the quality of their strategic communications, whereas those who have gone into radio silence uh, will suffer some reputational damage. We have another opinion, uh, which is creating positive and healthy environment it's very important that this situation is it is the leader's role to lead his team with trust and open to ideas that will help in keeping the business ongoing running thin is very challenging that requires being patient and careful with some of the decisions yeah gosh i mean i i i completely agree with all of that you know decision making requires a a, a lot of care and concern um, and I, I completely agree. I think that's that's a, that's actually a, a, a strong observation. Um, and you know, 
I think the, the, the thing that leaders are starting to realize in a crisis like this is, you, you know, that leadership is almost a real-time piece of work. Yes, you have a philosophy, you have a style, you have an approach, you, have a, you come from a certain expertise, you have certain objectives. But together with that, it's such a fluid art. Um, it's almost real time. And I think um, we've seen with some organizations in the world who just do that so beautifully that they're able to take in various perspectives, respond meaningfully and ethically and honestly. Um, and I think those organizations are going to survive into the future. But yeah, I, I agree with that comment completely. Uh, we have another question by one of the attendees who asked, do you believe in forming a crisis committee? Yes, I, I, I do think it's valuable, um, you know, but, but I think it's important that that crisis committee must be, and, and one of the, I mean, the sort of the, the logic behind a crisis committee, um, and maybe Valbona will just take one or two more questions and then we Definitely. can close. Yeah. The, the, the reason for that crisis committee is that what organizations sometimes try to do is they try to think which operations can be ongoing and which considerations must be given to the crisis and so there's almost a kind of parallel uh, decision making process happening and the the reality is that with those processes that can continue you don't want to disrupt um, those processes with the madness that comes um, with the crisis management. And so for that reason, it's actually very valuable to have a crisis committee. And that crisis committee should be comprised of as many different um, senior level people as you can from various, uh, uh, various areas of the operation and must have a, a way to get information from various levels inside the organization, including the, uh, the frontline staff. So I think the crisis committee is an excellent idea and that the chairperson of that committee should, should uh, sit at an exco level um, for the foreseeable future. And, um, and you know, there may be some expertise you can find for that in the, in the risk committee, but the, the important principle is to think what which operations can continue more or less as they were and what needs to be considered in that uh, crisis committee so that the whole organization doesn't feel like it's in crisis and the last question for today would be uh, should we set a new target for the year or leave it just the way it is or and push employees to achieve the same Wow, um, I think if you if you are still asking that question, then you you must be in a very luxurious position, um, because the reality is that for 99% of companies, that question's already been answered. So, uh, and 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 the way it's been answered is undoubtedly we've had a we, we've had a dramatic uh, cut in the outlook. So I don't think there's any economy on the planet that hasn't had a dramatic revisioning of its uh, global domestic product, for example. But that doesn't mean that that's true for each individual company. So there are companies, think about um, online buying platforms or um, online delivery platforms or any, any, um, any organization that was just about to peak before we went into lockdown that was, that was uh, kind of a hyper-digitized platform. 
those businesses are actually flourishing during this time. If you look at, let's say, you look at the, I don't know if we have anyone from Shopify, but you look at the Shopify share price, for example, during this time, absolutely going through the roof. So the reality is we were in a more or less stable system. That system has had a disruption. That disruption means an absolute review. And I do hope that the person who asked the question is in a position where they're able to revise their targets upwards uh, rather than downwards like, like most of the planet. Lovely question. Thank you. Yeah. So I believe it's time to wrap up as we are running out of time. So dear all attendees, on behalf of Liran, myself and Dr. Mornay Mustard, it has been a grand pleasure to have you today. And we are honored that you have been part of the leadership webinar, Connecting with Human Motivation as an Essential Tool During and After the Crisis. Uh, we hope to have met your expectation and even exceeded the same. And we hope that you have gotten the most out of this experience. Um, we have two more upcoming projects with Dr. Mornay in the upcoming weeks. The, the second one is another webinar on foresight and futures thinking. Uh, the topic is scenario development in a time of crisis. We are relating it again to the, uh, to the crisis as, uh, due to the situation we are in. Uh, this event will be on 23rd of June, which is next Tuesday at the same time, 5 p.m. Saudi time. Then the other one will be another uh, live virtual training course, which will last for five days. It's called Masterclass in Leadership Thinking. It will start 28th of June until 1st of July. Uh, well, we hope that each one of you has uh, will consider joining us in this program, and it will be our pleasure having uh, to welcome you again. Uh, we hope that you have enjoyed the webinar and that our collaboration will not end here. Have a lovely evening ahead. Stay safe and thank you again. Bye-bye. Shukran. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Silvana. Thank you to you as well.